1: I want to bring in Katya Porzikansky. I mispronounced her name, even though we had just been talking about it. Katya Porzakansky, excuse me, uh, Bloomberg yeah. News reporter uh, who wrote a fantastic story uh, on the Bloomberg. It's one of the most well read of the day um, about bro culture on Wall Street and how Donald Trump rising to be uh you know, the Republican candidate is uh, actually empowering the bro culture. Can you talk a little bit about what your story was about? Absolutely. I
2: I went into this thinking that – I could write a story about the amazing uh, discussions and dialogues that are happening across Wall Street trading floors. It never happened before with people, you know, come with men coming up to their female colleagues and being like, wow, let's really talk about this. But no, that's not that's not really what's happening. Uh, I spoke with about 20 women at hedge funds, private equity firms, uh, Wall Street banks. Um, and that's really not what's going on, at least not in most of them. Um, I've heard, uh, some really shocking stories, some kind of, uh, some stories I kind of expected, uh, but give us a, give us a shocking story. Uh, well, one woman, um, uh, basically learned through all this that her, her, her boss, uh, doesn't really think that, that, uh, what Donald Trump was describing in his remarks about on the bus, those famous remarks, you know. Are are that bad, basically, and and she, and she's a victim of sexual assault herself, and now she's wondering if um, she will be supported by her boss if she, if something ever were to happen to her on a business trip or in in the office environment, and she's also questioning his judgment, um, you know, as her boss. Is her her boss's just general judgment, if you know, if 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 he's necessarily so, making good decisions. So this this sort of so,
3: speaks to this point that that you know former Microsoft CEO Steve Ballmer was. ...making when he said that CEOs should not speak up in terms of who they support politically. But my question is, is Donald Trump such an other candidate here that when you're making comments like this that are so obviously degrading to women... Is it your responsibility as a boss or a leader to make a public statement to show some sort of recognition uh, that, you know, I I don't agree with these statements?
2: Exactly. I think that was what was really interesting from a lot of the conversations I had that if um, if you believe uh, or your bosses or your colleagues are Trump supporters and they don't come out and just say, hey, by the way, I don't really agree with what he said about women, then you're. On edge, you're kind of – you're like,
0: well,
2: without having that conversation, you're going to be thinking to yourself, is that what my boss or my colleagues think about women? And you kind of – the lack of a conversation is is just as bad. Um, so that's what's, what was really interesting about it because I mean, it's one thing when you're surrounded by women in an office and everyone kind of is talking about things all the time. But if you're that one woman on a trading floor and you're surrounded by 25 people who are backing uh, a a, a politician that feels this way about women. You need to have a dialogue. Did
3: did you get the sense that people are actually emboldened to say even more aggressive statements with Donald Trump?
2: There were a few women that I spoke with who sit on or by a trading floor that said that they that the comments have added fuel to the joke pool, um, and well, and that's em- for sure. yeah, and and emboldened them to say things um, that on already a misogynistic day to day environment uh, has gotten even worse. And the other thing that they that several women mentioned was it's not necessarily about Donald Trump; it's about Hillary Clinton too. A lot of the comments that are made about Hillary and her ability to lead that sound gendered. Um, are putting women republican and democrat democratic women alike on edge that okay is this what they think about leaders that are women and therefore is this what they're thinking about me and that was really powerful that several women mentioned that that there's this constant you know that double bind of i can't be a leader and i can't be a woman i can't make everybody happy um and and it's bringing up all these thoughts, uh, which in this conversation, this inner dialogue, and they can't really talk about it to anybody because they don't want to be ostracized and they don't want to be thought of as emotional or overthinking it or
1: anything like that. And speaking to that point, I mean, what has the response been like? Do people say that you're overthinking it?
2: Almost everybody that I spoke to said, I can't talk about this at work and I can't talk about it uh, on the record. So or did they think that i was overthinking? Well no, that i mean that's yeah. that's very interesting but yeah.
1: but after you wrote the article, i mean what have what have the responses been like?
2: Oh, so i've gotten several emails from women being like this is spot on. Several women Several emails. So it's it's all been on. positive? Uh, not all of it. I have gotten a few emails um you know wondering um you know what my motives were, or if this is an, an opinion that I have. And I again, I have to stress this isn't an opinion. I went in thinking that this would be a very that you know all of Wall Street would have been enlightened or something about the struggles women face, and, and it, it wasn't that so. Um, so there's an environment out there that I'm you know not necessarily privy to, and uh, I learned a lot from uh, speaking with uh, these women.
3: Are you surprised at all that we're we're still dealing with this level of sort of base uh comments you know what I mean by that like like in in other words that we haven't really been able to address as a professional culture yet that that talking about women in this way is obviously not cool
2: well I think that the most overt stuff is kind of been taken care of but the problem is that it's not gone there's just this veneer Right, it, it's still there, but it's more subtle. It's not overt harassment; it's discrimination. That is the that was the consistent theme. Every single woman I talked to said she still faces some sort of discrimination or sexism uh, at work, and either at work or doing business in the field. But
3: maybe subtle, not necessarily so overt. and that's what's
2: even harder to address. It's not something you could just bring to HR and be like, this happened. It's more the the constant things that just chip away at you and and leave you behind. Well, and
1: I should say, I mean, Donald Trump is not uh, necessarily representative of male leaders in corporate America. I remember a story a a month or two ago about how any CEO who had said what Donald Trump had said would have been fired. There is a, quote, uh, in an article from last month uh, where a CEO of a boutique executive search firm said any CEO who got caught making the kind of comments Trump did would be out the door in 24 hours. So this isn't necessarily
2: representative of, no, no, by, of any, by any means. Exactly. And that's that was actually one of the points that one of the women I spoke to said. She said... If if this guy would have been fired if he worked with us here, but he's there running for president, what kind of license is that giving the people around me to say something? So it, it, I, even if things aren't happening right now, um, if the effect isn't happening right now, it's bringing up questions in people's minds as to what will be the lasting impact from this, um, either for women uh, because of the way that Hillary has been scrutinized um, in these circles or or for men to Embolden them. Katya Porzoganski
1: from Bloomberg News. Thank you so much. Fascinating story. Uh, and regardless of people's opinions, definitely a topic uh, that's important just to talk about. Thank you so much for being with us. I'm Lisa Bromwitz here with Alex Sherman. This is Bloomberg. I want to bring uh, Heidi Scherholtz uh, into the conversation. She is uh, the chief economist for Labor Secretary Tom Perez and uh, a longtime labor economist who came to the Labor Department from the Economic Policy Institute. Heidi, thank you so much for being with us.
0: Oh, thank you for having me.
1: Uh, so, what was your big takeaway from today's jobs numbers?
0: The the key thing about today's jobs numbers is that it shows that the labor market is continuing to reliably improve. We're seeing monthly job gains that are strong enough; they're solid enough to start to start start tightening employment conditions. And the good thing about that is that it's in, that is in turn boosting wage growth. So the solid job growth is really starting to act on. Um, boosting wage growth now, so workers are seeing now sustainable, meaningful wage growth. And that's very good news for the American worker. We're and not there yet. We still we still have progress. There's still progress to be made. But this is these are nice steps that we're taking.
3: And so, Heidi, we, we've seen the headline numbers, 161,000 jobs created last month for nonfarm payrolls. The unemployment rate dropped to 4.9%. What is underneath the headline numbers that we should be paying attention to? Is there one or two sort of bullet points that stick out to you as particularly interesting or important for this month?
0: Yeah, one of the um, when I whenever I see a single number, I always want to check it against longer run trends because you know there can be month to month volatility in the numbers. We saw 161,000 jobs added this month. If you look over the last three months, it was 176,000. So, so what we saw today is in line with what we've been seeing. Um, the key thing that I that I think is important. What that trend has been translating into that's not in those direct headline numbers is the wage growth so over the last year we we saw two point eight percent growth in average wages inflation over that period is running at about one and a half percent so that difference right. that's what workers are taking home in terms of real or "Quote unquote inflation adjusted wage growth," and so that's good news. That's the well, that's the thing that's not in the headline, but that is a really salient part of this report.
1: Well, uh, but there was there were some uh, blemishes in the report. In particular, uh, the participation rate, in other words, the the share of working age people who are employed or. Um, looking for work. It's just there are more people still who are working either part-time or have been out of work for so long that they're not even counted in these numbers, uh, and that, that those rates of those people are still higher than uh, it was before the last recession. I mean, how concerned are you about that?
0: It is. That is part of this, the unfinished business of this recovery. In no way do we think that we are there yet, quote-unquote. We are not, you know, sort of spiking the football. There's still a lot of work to be done. And labor force participation rate in particular is one of those areas. One thing about the specific movement that we saw this month, it ticked down. But it's sort of been bouncing around. It's actually been pretty flat. And to get a little bit wonky about that, that's actually weirdly kind of good news because there's demographic changes that should be pushing that labor force participation rate down. In particular, we're seeing this huge cohort of baby boomers hitting retirement age. So the fact that we're holding pretty steady while swimming upstream in terms of, you know, swimming against those demographic trends that would be pushing the labor force participation rate down, that actually means that we are seeing people people being brought in who who by the strengthening labor market.
1: Heidi, uh, do you think that if the Fed does uh, raise rates, which is, they're widely expected to do, Next month, um, and then and then continues on on a pace that is perhaps two rate hikes next year. That the the labor market will be able to continue making progress.
0: You know, I will let uh, other people comment on the res- the, the likelihood or results of any Fed action. But what we are seeing is a, an economy that's really resilient right now. We're just seeing steady, reliable job growth that has been pretty um, resilient to various headwinds that have been thrown in its direction.
1: One other question um, with respect to wage growth, are there particular industries that have been driving the overall wage growth that we saw last month?
0: You know, one of the I, I think one of the um, key features of the last couple years in the labor market is that we have seen strong growth, employment growth across the board. Including in middle and high wage jobs, so we're really in the in the first part of the recovery, we really were seeing disproportionate growth in very low wage jobs. Right. In the last couple of years, that has shifted dramatically, and now we're seeing strong growth in middle and high wage jobs. And we saw that this month too. Like what industries?
1: What industries are you talking about in particular?
0: uh, Professional and technical services. Mm -hmm. So that's the subsector of professional and business services. That's higher wage jobs, like computer systems, people that come into a business and help with computer systems, accountants, architects, those kinds of professional business services. We saw decent jobs growth in construction in October. Those are, those are relatively high paying job jobs. We're seeing strong growth in education and health. There's, um, those, those sort of tend to be, for the most part middle wage jobs. And so, it, again, the job growth is across the board, but we are, we are definitely also seeing this growth in middle and high-wage jobs.
1: Heidi Schierholtz, thank you so much for being with us. Heidi Schierholz, uh Chief Economist for Labor Secretary Tom Perez on today's Jobs Report. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm here with Alex Sherman filling in for PIM Fox. This is Bloomberg. be another brexit that's certainly what a lot of traders think right now the u.s election's coming up and you have some uh market makers some uh exchanges that are preparing and requiring more uh margin people that post more margin in order to gird against potential volatility here to break it all down with us is Lenan Nguyen of bloomberg news uh you wrote a fabulous story about this so how are people preparing for potential volatility in uh in uh, in currency markets right now.
4: So what we've heard is that a lot of people are really preparing for the unexpected. Uh, As with Brexit, a lot of people were caught out, out, um, weren't prepared for the sort of political uncertainty that that followed. Um, So right now, no one on the street is taking anything for granted. They are staffing up, double staff, overnight pizza, coffee, all of that. Uh, But also uh, in terms of the weeds, you know, people are stress testing all their portfolios. They're looking at where they're most vulnerable on the downside side in case of something unexpected happening. So you're talking not only about investors, but you're also talking about uh,
1: dealers and uh, exchanges. Can you talk a little bit about what the potential risk is for them that they're trying to protect against?
4: well the markets have been very illiquid and so a month ago obviously we saw the flash crash happen overnight uh, in the pound and that's gotten people kind of sitting up because foreign exchange markets in particular have been very illiquid um, and so when something unexpected happens when a, a headline comes out uh, markets can have this cascading effect uh, in terms of prices so that's something everyone is looking out for there's also a question of you know big volumes going through overnight uh, you know if a headline comes out suddenly every everything's moving all once, and you could get algos tripping and um, causing big moves.
3: We're seeing an interesting disconnect, I think, between investors who, as your story points out, seem to be, you know, let's say panicking might be too strong, but certainly preparing themselves for... Uh, a Donald Trump win. And CEO, Hold on, wait, hold on. I'm sorry. Yeah.
1: I'm sorry, Alex. I'll let you continue one second. But when you said, I don't want to get carried away with panicking, there is somebody quoted in, in your story, Linan. I'm getting night sweats and yes. flashbacks <laughs> of Brexit. I mean, that person, that portfolio manager might be panicking.
3: Correct. And by the way, as an aside uh, to, to making the point I'm going to make, um, I, I have been bothered by the Brexit comparison to this up until very recently because the Brexit polls the day before or so were like 51-49. Mm. Until very recently... You know, the, the almost every you know, let's say look look at five thirty eight, which has been sort of the dominant uh, website on this, you know, the polling has been nothing close to that. Now recently the polls have started to tighten a little bit and then maybe the Brexit comparison is a fair one. But my original point is that CEOs seem to be non by the election. All you need to do is look at what MA volume has been over the past month or so. The MA in October has been was the highest MA volume of all time, ever. Uh, uh, just weeks before the election.
1: Well, that so, could be potentially because they wanted to take advantage of the low borrowing costs too, right? I mean, that's. I'm sure. sorry.
3: <laughs> Absol- absolutely, absolutely, and, and that that may be a thing. But if but if the election was that big of an issue for them, if there was that much fear associated with it, that would likely, again, no pun intended, Trump uh, concerns about uh, or 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 you know concerns about interest rates rising. I spoke to several people about this. Several. People, advisors, lawyers who are in the boardroom, and they told me, honestly, the election doesn't even come up in CEO conversations. Well, really? So they're not concerned.
1: Maybe because they don't want to get um, into, into trouble. But Lenin, I wanted to ask you about which currencies in particular are most at risk. I mean, The Mexican peso seems like a pretty ripe candidate, uh, as well as the U.S. dollar. What what are people telling you?
4: Um, It's going to be the U.S. dollar for sure, obviously. Um, On the other side of that dollar trade, you have the yen, which is a safe haven currency. So obviously if something unexpected happens, the yen could get a a bid. Uh, Mexican peso has been super sensitive throughout this entire presidential election um, process. And uh, the, the retail brokers have raised their margins on the peso because... Uh, they want people to set aside more more money in case um, something crazy happens
1: well yeah and hasn't hasn't Mexico uh, been raising interest rates uh, just in order to support the peso because of the bets uh, that that Trump could could become president and therefore would send the the value of the peso down.
4: So this is something interesting, you know, we hear people in the markets talking about uh, potentially intervention by the Mexican authorities in in the currency. Um, you know, obviously this is not this is pure speculation, but people are starting to have those conversations on the street about what's going to happen in the Mexican peso um, come election night. So yeah, there's there's a lot going on. So all nighters all-nighters. People are going to be staffed up over in Asia, too, I would imagine. Yep. Asia, uh, London, the U.S. I think this is a kind of all hands-on-deck situation. I think everybody's going to be staying up all night anyway to watch the uh, exactly. results come out. Um Lin-Ann Nguyen, thank you so much for joining
1: us. Linan Nguyen, who covers uh, the FX markets, very, very well for us here at Bloomberg News. Thank you uh, to talk a little bit about how uh, the volatility in the foreign exchange markets is already getting some people having night sweats and flashbacks of Brexit this. This is Bloomberg. Now we're going to turn our sights to the retailers of the world and what they're expecting for uh, this holiday season. Now that I guess that uh, Halloween is over, we can start talking about Christmas. I've already seen the, uh, the the Christmas candy in the stores. Craig Johnson, president of Customer Growth Partners, uh, do you think that this is going to be as bad a holiday season as some retailers seem to be suggesting?
5: Well, we're pretty often contrarian, and uh, we think it's actually going to be a little bit better. The uh, the consensus is it's going to be up about three and a half percent year over year total sales, Um, and we think it's going to be up four point one percent. We've been doing this for sixteen years forecasting, and and um, we think things are 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 coming together uh, in time for what's going to be a little bit better. It's not going to be a blowout Christmas. It's going to be a little bit better than people anticipate.
1: Well, what what types of stuff stuff in particular? particular?
5: Well, the um, uh, the one thing that's new this year um, is that the uh, health and beauty sector has, has been very strong. And that's n- not just CVS and Walgreens, but it's things like uh, uh, Ulta, beauty salons, uh, 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 GNC, Vitamin World, that whole health area, the whole beauty area, which is grouped together with the uh, with the major drug stores, is going to be a big driver. That's going to be at 7.4%. So that's going to be the strongest merchandise sector. Um, online, e-commerce will still be the overall fastest-growing sector. That will grow up about 13.9% year-over-year, um, in as, as, as sort of as a macro sector. Well,
3: certainly certainly GoPro, GoPro and Fitbit and... are going to need good holiday seasons after reporting their earnings this week, uh, both of them disappointing. Do we expect consumer electronics to be big? Is there some sort of hot gadget this year that may drive some holiday sales?
5: The the wearable technologies, they will get some... Uh, amount of sale, but they've been on the market for a little while. That's not net new. The one thing that is new, and, and with, with uh, not just the Oculus, but but also the uh, Sony, the, the VR, the virtual reality um, uh, 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 technology, has been coming on very strong. And uh, of course, that operates in conjunction with uh, with video games. And video games themselves, the consoles, uh, w- it's now been at least three years since any new generation of, of consoles. But now with the VR technology, that is driving a lot of interest, and um, it's a great giftable item, and it can really dramatically enlarge your experience. You know, whether you're in an Xbox environment or a Sony PS4 environment. Are your so,
3: kids old enough to be asking for that? Well, Lisa, the, they, the
5: they are older and beyond that. But no, but but my, my son will, will 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 do it because you know a lot of kids, you know, in, in their in their not kids, people in their twenties uh, will 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 do it. So, but that that is the the nature of the v r technology appeals both to the classic teen gamers, but also there's a lot of ex teen gamers that are now entered well under their 20s and 30s that, that love the thing.
1: Yeah, um, my, se- my seven year old actually literally yesterday said to me that some of his friends have iPhones and that he should have an iPhone and that one of his friends has two iPads. And I said, well, that's very nice for him, but um, too bad so. Sad. Maybe he Not- can give him one. <laughs> exactly. I don't think that uh, that's going to necessarily justify my giving him one. Uh, you know, hey, Craig, I was going to talk a little bit about uh, the clothing. Shops that have struggled so much—you know, whether we're talking about J. Crew or uh, uh, you know some of the uh, teen teen brands or Victoria's Secret—what
5: um, about those? Well, uh, apparel is—it's is, uh, going to have an okay, not at all great uh, on a unit demand, meaning unit volume sales will be up about four or five percent, which is which is nice, strong growth. The problem is, is is, is uh, apparel just like food and consumer electronics? There's a lot of price deflation in that, so that price deflation of about three percent and change is going to pull that unit volume down to only about one and a half percent a total sales growth, and uh, uh, and and some sectors of apparel are just getting crushed right now because of the warm weather, particularly outerwear sales, and so we see a lot of outerwear, uh, 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 you know, the heavier jackets and parkas and so forth on. Sale at at fifty percent off. So that's a that's a people that are in that side of the business are getting crushed.
1: Do you believe the uh, excuse that some some out there have been saying that the elections have dampened
5: purchases? Uh, I'm not sure I really uh, buy that. (laughs) You know, uh, retailers are notorious for using you know any kind of excuse for lousy sales. Oh, it's the weather's too hot. It's too cold. It's too medium. Or it's the elections. Um, and uh, weather and now elections are the last refuge of re- retail scoundrels that are underperforming. Um, uh, nonetheless, you know, any kind of major purchases, some people might be holding off on that a little bit. We've seen auto sales drop back a little bit, but we've also seen at the same time uh, a, a big picture TV, you know, the large TV sales, I mean the big guys, 65, 70 inches, those have been very, very strong. Um, and, and if there's any kind of election impact, it's certainly not affecting that Sector, uh, but from a sales point of view, a dollar point of view, uh, the again there's such price deflation in that things are down 15 to 20 percent a year on kind a, of on a of per inch basis that um, that that, that the, the number the dollar numbers will not be as great as again as the unit volume growth.
3: With the monthly jobs report coming out today, we did get some interesting data on the amount of hours Americans are working. I believe uh, this past month it was about 34.4 hours in a week. Uh, you note. Um, as you sort of talk about retail sales, that part of what's actually dampening growth uh, for holiday spending is that Americans are not working consistently 40-hour-a-week jobs. If they were, uh, just how much better would, would holiday spending and retail growth be?
5: Huge because right now, the, uh, barely 49% of working age adults have a full time job. And if, if people had the same, you know, versus 55%, you know, 10 or 12 years ago, that basically represents, it, it, in, in terms of a full time job equivalent, about 14, 15 million, million missing or phantom full time jobs on an hour's basis. Right now, uh, if, you, if you went back to, the, to uh, 15 years ago, uh, 10 or 15 years ago, American working-age adults on average worked about 26 hours a week, everybody all in. Not just the people in labor at uh, all. Now only the the average adult only works only 22 hours a week. So you you can do the math about what that's going to do to your your incomes, and that affects retail sales and everything else. So uh, so we we need to ramp up you know the the, the full time growth, full time job growth, and not just be looking. Oh, uh, unemployment is 4.9 percent, which is kind of a phony artifact statistic. So uh, we got to get the hours up and incomes, and that's what, at the end of the day, it's rise in, in overall disposable personal income that drives all consumer spending, and retail is the single biggest part, of course, of consumer spending.
1: Craig Johnson, thank you so much for joining us. Craig Johnson, president of Customer Growth Partners, which is based in New Canaan, Connecticut, talking about holiday sales at retailers and how his contrarian view is that they are going to do better, Alex, than a lot of people have been saying. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. Here with Alex Sherman. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg P&L podcast.
3: You can subscribe and
0: listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform
3: you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim
1: I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.